Hello, and welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game. See if that story bites us back. My name is Bill. This is episode 121. Thanks for listening, everybody. Welcome back. I imagine all of you are getting over the heady excitement of Mother's Day last week. I hope that you treated your moms well. And if you are moms, well, I still hope you treated your moms well. But I hope that you got the respect and tribute that you deserve. So what's new, everybody? Let's kick off the show with a Mad Mike Hughes update, perhaps for the last time. If you'll recall, last week's Mad Mike update found Mad Mike not so much concerned with proving that the Earth is flat. More focused on trying to beat the speed record in a boat, I guess. And he basically said he's putting the, uh, the, the whole build a rocket launch into space, take pictures of the Earth, and, you know, the dinosaurs, or rather the dragons that live at the edge of the Earth because, of course, the Earth is flat. He's trying to raise money to do that. In the meantime, he's going to spend money building this boat. Uh, He posted on April 29th the beginnings of a boat, and that's about it. He has not posted anything since then on his Facebook page. His merchandise is still available, though. If you want to buy stuff from him for this quest to prove the Earth is flat, which he's not actually doing anymore, well, it's your money. Go for it. So, I may be done with my Mad Mike at this point. If anyone else hears anything about uh, Mr. Mike, uh, he does have a last name, actually. It's Hughes. Mad Mike Hughes. Let me know. But uh, I may I may give Mad Mike a rest. So, what else is new, guys? I heard from the Vertical Blank podcast, which I have started listening to. Uh, it's very entertaining. They reached out to me on Twitter. Episode 0, titled Newbie, actually went out on April 25th, episode 1, proper, dropped on May 2nd. So this is a really new show. Uh, like I said, it's entertaining. I've listened to it. I'm going to keep listening. They reached out to me on Twitter, commenting, I think Atari Bytes Pod might win the story slam every time, but we have to try. Can't wait for his episode to drop tomorrow. Uh, and he also mentions Truth Justice Pod, which I have not actually listened to. Uh, but he says, my show and that one make my Sunday morning jobs 100 times better. Later, he thanked this show and some other shows, Truth Justice Pod, at SW7X7 Podcast, which I'm also not familiar with, for dropping new episodes this morning to help me along and motivate me for my morning run. So that was very nice. Into the Vertical Blank Podcast also responded to my post uh, announcing that episode 119, Sorcerer, was out and wrote, Last year I picked up Star Fox thinking it was Solar Fox. Then he's quoting from his own review, quote, the gameplay consists of you spastically trying to pick up crystals at the bottom of the screen and shooting at really evil baddies. There's a strange happy face in the top left that really creeps me out. Which is a good point. I was noting in Sorcerer the uh, straight-up stealing of Evil Otto from Berserk and how weird that is. Because, at least in Sorcerer, I don't remember about Star Fox. I don't think he does anything in Star Fox either. He just kind of sits there uh, saying, hey... I'm a trademark infringement. Hey, look at me. But he doesn't actually uh, participate in the game. So thanks, Vertical Blank Podcast. Guys, go check that show out. After you finish listening to this one, you will not be disappointed. Steve Fulton at FultonBot also responded to episode 119, Sorcerer. Uh, A new listener. Welcome. He says, listening for the first time now. Good so far. Thanks. I point out to him that, you know, it all goes downhill from here. But welcome anyway, and welcome all of you new listeners. I like having new people come and visit. I hope you'll stick around. Okay, what else is going on? Listen, you guys like old video games, right? Which means you're all of a certain age. 
specifically above legal drinking age, probably. Some of you might not be, and if you are, don't listen to this part. For reasons, not really important why, medical reasons, I am at least temporarily unable to enjoy uh, an alcoholic beverage, and this makes me sad. You can find substitutes of a sort for beer, um, gin. I've found a recipe to make pseudo non-alcoholic gin, at least that's at least passable for like a gin and tonic, but I have not yet found a good substitute for whiskey. I was, am, will always be a bourbon fan, um, but there's just not that I found a good de-alcoholized substitute for bourbon. There's de-alcoholized wine, uh, red and white. Um, like I said, I found uh, a recipe for, you know, quote-unquote gin using de-alcoholized white wine, but I've not yet found a good whiskey substitute, particularly bourbon if I can, but I'll take, you know, scotch or whatever I can get. If you guys happen to know of a good de-alcoholized whiskey or substitute of some sort, uh, I am open to suggestions. So this is my request for, uh, for some suggestions. Uh, give it some thought. Thanks. What else? Kyle Anderson writes for The Nerdist, and he recently wrote an article that basically posits the idea that a lot of movies are really just the Magnificent Seven in another form. He notes that somebody wrote a book once that said there are only 12 basic plots that keep getting reused over and over again in every storytelling medium throughout the history of the world. He doesn't give a name or an author for that book because, as he points out, I, meaning him, didn't read the book because he was watching movies. But one of the plots, he supposes, is probably the plot of the Magnificent Seven, which, of course, itself is a reinvention of Akira Kurosawa's 1954 film Seven Samurai. The story is basically this. Uh, in the Samurai movie, a small town in rural Japan is ransacked by a gang of bandits who keep coming back again and again, ransacking the town, taking all of the uh, farm community's food, and threatening to kill everyone when they come back, if they can't come up with more food. Uh, they can't do it. Incredibly short timeline. They just can't come up with it, so they recruit ronin, which are masterless samurai, to fight on their behalf. The samurai are a motley crew. Each member has his own personality and skill set. The wizened leader, the hothead, the buffoon, the one skilled in archery, the other, the greatest swordsman in Japan, and a vagrant who dreams of greatness. Six years later, Hollywood turned it into a western with 1960s The Magnificent Seven, directed by John Sturgis. Basically, they moved that same story to a Mexican village where they cross into America to get mercenaries to defend them from Mexican bandits. The movie starred Yul Brynner in his first western role. So basically, Kyle Anderson is positing that an awful lot of movies since then have really just been The Magnificent Seven or Seven Samurai redone. You've got The Dirty, the dirty Dozen, The Professionals, the first appearance of DC Comics Justice League, which initially had seven members. Marvel had Fantastic Four, then the X-Men, then the Avengers. He also mentions a movie called Battle Beyond, where the peaceful planet of Akir, where the inhabitants are called Akira, as a nod to Kurosawa, is attacked by the evil Maomori Empire led by Sador, who ransacks the planets to take resources and body parts to elongate his own life. The Akira are peaceful and naive, so a farm boy sets out with his living spaceship to recruit heroes to fight their cause. He even calls out, and this is close to my heart, a Doctor Who episode called The Girl Who Died, which the storyline for that is kind of an homage to Magnificent Seven also. Uh, also, A Bug's Life, which uh, coincidentally Henry was watching a few days ago. If you guys can think of any other movies or stories 
that play on the Magnificent Seven, uh, Seven Samurai format, let me know. The 12 plots thing, I'd always heard it as like five plots. Let's see if we can figure out the 12 plots. You've got um, Boy Meets Girl, Boy Loses Girl, a war picture, a heist film, somebody gets sick and has to deal with it, family drama of some sort, a western, space battle, prison movie, somebody on the run. What would some other sort of distinctive plot lines be? Need three more. I don't know. If you have three more uh, plot lines that encompass all of storytelling, or if you think any of the ones I just mentioned are crap, send me your own suggestions. Finally, news came out within the last week or so that it looks like finally they are for sure, like there's a script and the stars have signed on to make a Bill and Ted follow-up. It even has a title, at least a working title, Bill and Ted Face the Music. Keanu Reeves and the other one who's not Keanu Reeves have signed on to make this movie 30 years after the first two being of course Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I don't know that not Keanu Reeves has acted a whole lot in the last 30 years. Uh, Alex Winter, that's uh, his name. I think I may just keep calling him not Keanu Reeves. Dean Parasot, whose credits include Galaxy Quest, which was a really good movie. And the Oscar-winning short, The Appointments of Dennis Jennings, will direct the new movie, so they've got a director too, called Bill and Ted Face the Music, currently in pre-production, which is sort of vague, but that seems to suggest they're actually doing something. No indication in this article as far as, like, a timeline to film the thing, or when it'll be released. I don't know. This, to some degree, feels like the sequel that nobody really asked for. It's been rumored for, you know, literally 30 years. I don't know. I don't hate the idea. I don't love the idea, I guess. Having said that, I have no doubt that I will see the movie, at least on video, when it comes out. And let's just hope it's, insert obligatory Bill and Ted reference here, let's just hope that it is most triumphant. Alright, let's get on to this week's game. This week's game is... You're deep within a mysterious planet, a maze of tunnels and caverns being attacked by the savage Electrosauri, whose fiendish electromolecular charges can make your skeleton glow. There's no escape. Faster and faster they come. It's the most terrifying moment of your life. And we've just turned it into a video game. Space Cavern by Apollo, with 48 fiendish variations. They say it's only a game. They lie. Space Cavern. I don't know why I did spooky ghost voice there, but I did. Space Cavern is a 1982 game from Games by Apollo. The manual tells us that in Space Cavern, you are in command of a Mark 14 intergalactic star cruiser in an uncharted quadrant of outer space. You land on a mysterious planet riddled with a subterranean maze of tunnels and caverns inhabited by a savage electrosauri whose horns generate electromolecular charges capable of disintegrating you and your crew. That's why you send the red shirts down first. Duh. Your photon ray pistol is activated by the joystick and the fire button. The iridescent eyes of the electrosauri light the cavern walls with eerie flashes of as they stalk you, their horns crackling and sizzling. If even one blast of electromolecular energy strikes you, your skeleton will glow inside your body as the biomolecular compounds of your body disintegrate. Ow. Warning. Beware the savage attack of the shaggy marsupods. Alright. I'm not sure that's a thing. I don't know that the science holds up for this. Just saying. 
Space Cavern is played with one or two players using the joystick controller. Be sure the power is off when you insert or remove the Space Cavern cartridge from your video game system, or you will be blasted with electromolecular energy and disintegrated. I might have added that last part. Difficulty switch controls the speed of electromolecular charges fired down at you by the electrosauri, but I thought they were down in the cavern. That part I don't get either. They're firing from over you, but aren't they in the cavern with you? Very confused. Placing the switch, the difficulty switch that is, in the B position will allow, will slow down the fuselage fired at your spaceman, while the frenzied A mode will provide the greatest challenge for veteran players ever. I definitely added the ever part. Hold your joystick controller so that the red fire button is in the upper left hand corner. Use this button to fire your laser up at the electrosauri above. Use your joystick to move your spaceman to the left and right. Pulling back toward yourself causes him to fire his dis disruptor ray at the shaggy marsupods who rush from the right, while pushing down and pushing forward causes him to pivot and fire to the left. Note you do not have to depress the red firing button to fire left or right with your disruptor ray. You will discover in the field report that I become very frustrated with being able to fire to the right, but not being able to fire to the left. I don't know if this is a flaw in the design of the game, or a flaw in the design of me. You land with a crew of four men, meaning you have four lives, and can replace lost men every time you earn 20,000 points, which for me, don't look like it's going to happen. But four men at any one time is your maximum force. Two-player games are played just like one-player games, with players alternating every time that you lose a man. Every large Electrosaurus you destroy earns you 115 points, which is just a strange number to me. Why not say 100, or 200, or 10? Why 115? Anyway, smaller ones are worth 165 points. I suppose because they're smaller. Harder to hit, I guess. Shaggy Marsipods, who rush at your spaceman from caves at his left and right, will earn you 200 points, if you can get them before they get you, which is really hard. They look like little Pac-Man ghosts. Pac-ghosts. Ghosts of Pac-Man, not the ghosts in Pac-Man. And they move really fast. And like I said, there's that whole not being able to shoot to the left thing that I experienced. If you can't tell already, I'm very frustrated with this game. And then there's a chart showing you by game number for the... Get ready... 48 games that are available, all sorts of combinations. Number of players, number of electrosauri, electrosauri blast direction, blast directors, straight or random, marsupods, yes or no, level 1, 2, 3, do you want fries with that, with 2 you get egg roll, and do you want leg hair removal or the full Brazilian? Um, here, let me hold the chart up for you so you can just look at it for yourself. Alright, can everybody see in the back? Thanks. Okay. So that is how you play, what's it called? Space Cavern. As I was researching this week's game, <laughs> research, that's funny. I happened to notice Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast with our friend Ferd reviewed this game way back in episode 50. So after you're done listening to this, go check that out. I have no doubt his review of the gameplay will be much better than mine. Our friend Mr. Wikipedia tells us that Space Cavern is a 1982 shooter Developed and released by Games by Apollo, founder of Games by Apollo, Pat Roper, was impressed by the game Demon Attack and tasked Apollo member Dan Oliver with making a game very similar to it. The game was later re-released as Space Canyon, which is much better at being a fairly non-descriptive, sort of pointless title, in my opinion. 
Game publisher Panda released a, an identical version of Space Cavern under the name Space Canyon, uh, as we noted, in 1983. An Atari 5200-port uh, was started but not completed. As development neared completion, mounting financial pressures came to a head, and Games by Apollo found itself owing nearly $5 million, half of which debt belonged to, his to its advertising agency, Benton & Bowles. Games by Apollo faced growing pressure from Benton & Bowles to repay its debts, and a few months after Space Cavern's release in 1982, Games by Apollo filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Although Roper expected Apollo to return in smaller form, the company closed in 1983 after reorganization attempts failed. The reviewer for Arcade Express magazine was positive about Space Tavern, praised the graphics of the player's death, which is kind of cool, in a more colorful, berserk sort of way. The reviewer criticized the design of the enemies and finished the review by opening the game, opining the game would be more suited for skilled players. TV Gamer's review criticized it for being too simple and not requiring much brain power. Ouch. Video Gaming Illustrated compared the game positively to Phoenix and believed that it was arguably the best space game on the market. Wow. The writer opined that it was Games by Apollo's best game, which may not be saying much, and noted the suitability for both young and experienced players. Go read that Arcade Express review where they said you needed... Arcade Express said you need to be skilled. TV Gamer said you didn't need much brain power. Now Video Game Illustrated is back on the... is riding the fence and saying, eh, anybody could play it. In a review for Video Magazine, Bill Kunkel and Arnie Katz did not agree whether Space Cavern's control scheme was unnaturally cumbersome or an exciting departure from the expected. In a follow-up review for Electronic Games, Kunkel and Katz conclude that the game would entertain arcade players hundreds of times over, but criticized the graphics of the enemies. Space Cavern was an honorable mention in the Best Action Video Game category at the 1983 Arcade Awards. All Game gave the game 2 out of 5 stars. Alan Weiss wrote that the game was not a particularly engaging gaming experience and referred to it as an interesting failure. The designers had a couple of good ideas, but the execution of those ideas in conjunction with the shoot-em-up action is second-rate. In his book, Classic Home Video Games, 1972-84, Weiss wrote that the game's box art was better than the actual game. Ow. Alright, well, with that ringing endorsement, after the break, we fight within a cavern filled with nothing but empty space. Much like the soul within us all. Discuss! Space travel via the Bark 4 intergalactic star cruiser is not for everyone. If you have experienced glowing skeletons from biomolecular compounds disintegrating, please consult with your physician. Unless, of course, his skeleton has also been biomolecularly disintegrated. And right off the bat... This is a very 70s looking game. I got my guy down here in his white jumpsuit with the red stripe. I got these sort of weird wall art looking space aliens shooting me. I don't get what they turn into when you shoot them. When you shoot the uh, giant space octopuses up to high, and they turn into some other thing as they float down harmlessly upon you. And biomolecularly disintegrated again. Wonder if there's like a balm you can put on for that. Wow, I didn't even get to the weird floaty things. 
I haven't had enough coffee. So, there's a ghost Batman. So not only do you have to shoot up, which only requires you to push your button, you have to shoot to the left and right by actually moving your joystick at the same time. Really, really annoying. Ah, I got Space Pac-Man. Ghost Pac-Man. Ooh, they should make another Pac-Man game called Pac-Ghost. Kind of flip the uh, Pac-Man versus the ghost thing on its head. I'm very confused. I know I read the manual, but who listens to the manual? This one guy's just pooping biomolecular He should eat some more roughage. Or less roughage. Alright, one more. Ah, you didn't get me that time, did you? It's raining. Electromagnetic space poop. That's what they should call this game. Space poop! Comes a pack ghost. So you got Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, Baby Pac-Man, Super Pac, uh, Professor Pac-Man, uh, we need Ghost Pac-Man, Pac-Ghost. Get on that bally midway. Back to you in the studio. So here's the thing about Space Cavern. It's pretty empty, as the title implies. There's nothing on the screen that screams at me, Cavern. I don't like, I think I'm kind of on record, because there have been other games similar to this. I don't like games where you shoot by moving your joystick. That's not what the joystick is for. The joystick is to move your guy. Uh, and the red little button up in the left-hand left corner, as we're constantly told, is how you shoot stuff. I especially don't like games where you have to shoot one thing by, move, by pressing the button and shoot a different thing by moving the joystick. I don't like it. It's too complicated for this era of games, and it's usually a clever little device that is supposed to make you think, this is cool, when in fact what you're seeing on the screen really isn't that cool at all. One of the reviews, I don't know if it's one that I read, or just something else that I saw in my research, said, some cool ideas here, but it gets really repetitive really fast. And it does. I don't particularly like this game. I do think the guy is kind of cool. I do think his death is kind of cool, as we talked about in one of the reviews but there's not much else I like about this game. I said it, I'm on record. Unlike, say, a game like Amadar, that I think is a dumb premise, I think this is a good premise, but it's a dumb game. But you know what's not dumb? The story within the game. The story that you don't know, because I haven't told you. Actually, I'll reserve judgment on whether it's a dumb story or not. But it is a fascinating peek at the little-known story of one of the little-known stories of Hollywood. Hollywood's, eh, perhaps not golden age, but the era of Hollywood that gave us things like Star Trek and other things that weren't Star Trek that I'm blanking on at the moment. Dragnet, perhaps. Or Car 54, Where Are You? Which I think might actually have been the 50s. Or My Mother the Car. But mostly, let's remember Star Trek. Seriously. 
when you listen to the story, remember Star Trek. Although, uh, for legal reasons, the story that you're about to hear has absolutely nothing to do with Star Trek. Which is actually true. It's perhaps inspired by that era of television and that type of television making. We'll just leave it there. When Tim Jewell graduated high school in the mid-1960s, he threw a small suitcase in the back of his 1949 Ford and drove to Hollywood. He worked a few terrible jobs before landing a job at his TV studio as a gopher, which was still a pretty terrible job, getting coffee, delivering mail, packaging hush money for mistresses, and refilling decanters of whiskey, then cleaning up the vomit that resulted from emptying of the last decanter of whiskey. But Tim Jewell was close to the action. He was an aspiring playwright and songwriter, but TV writing was where it was at, man, so he wanted in, desperately trying to break into the business. His desire was so infectious, his little brother Tom Jewell followed him out to Hollywood by Greyhound bus when he got out of school. Tim knew a guy who knew a guy who got Tom a job moving pianos. The Jewell brothers' future, they assumed with the confidence of youth, was assured. Friday was payday for both the Jewell brothers. The building that housed the network's corporate offices had a rooftop bar where a lot of network people hung out. On this particular Friday, Tim and Tom Jewell hung out there too, hoping to see Bob Denver from Gilligan's Island, or William Shatner from Star Trek, or anybody from Mission Impossible. Today, though, the Jewell brothers had other things on their mind as well. They were celebrating with a glass of low-priced bourbon and two straws. During late nights and two infrequent breaks from their crappy day jobs, the two had been writing TV pitches. Most of them were terrible and quickly discarded, but this time they'd hit on something great. A ways down the bar, Hank Swaggart drained his fourth martini glass and chewed the olive with tense, deliberate chomps, with teeth too white for an era of pre-whitening strips. He swirled his swizzle stick pensively. It was tough being the number four guy behind the head of programming at the network, while in actuality effectively being the number two guy, since number three was still suffering the fallout from the quiz show scandals of the 1950s, and was relegated to the only corner office on the whole block, let alone in the same building, without any windows. Swaggart desperately needed an idea for a show. The most recent pitches he'd thrown at his boss, one about a group of 20-somethings who sit around in an apartment in New York City and talk about themselves, and another show about a comedian and his wacky friends, also in New York City, who didn't do much at all. Swaggart had called that one a show about nothing, and both pitches had been shot down as ridiculous. Back at the jewel end of the bar, Tim said, Here's to the soon-to-be best show on television, and the young upstarts who will make it. Although Swaggart's ear canals felt flooded with overflow from his martini-soaked brain, his ears tried valiantly to perk up at the mention of the best TV show ever. Tom crowed, The adventures of the crew of a star cruiser leading other cruisers through the unknown depths of space will run for years. Swaggart picked up his pen, spilling martini. Damn it. Tim shouted, Battling their enemy, the evil Electrosaurus. Defeating scores of savage, shaggy marsipods with their photon ray pistols, Tom said. And of course, betting quadruple-breasted purple women, Tom laughed. And we'll call it, Tim began, uh, what will we call it? Tom took a sip from his side of the bourbon glass, screwed up his face in thought, then said, tentatively, Space Caravan. The brothers both nodded and tried to clink glasses before realizing that they only had the one. To Space Caravan, they toasted. Swaggart scribbled so furiously he tore the cocktail napkin. But his troubles were over. 
At the development meeting the following Monday, Swaggart was nervous. Very. Not that they would do so, but had the other executives at the meeting chose to lick the voluminous, salty sweat off Swaggart's upper lip, they would have all died from high blood pressure-induced heart attacks instead of the smoking-induced heart attacks, ulcers, liver disease, and, in one case, a freak putting green accident that would eventually claim them all. When it was Swaggart's turn to suggest a new project for development, he paused only a moment before thoroughly, or almost thoroughly, stealing the Jewel Brothers' idea. Well, uh, he said, glancing down at the torn cocktail napkin among his papers. It's a space adventure, like a wagon train to the stars. The others chortled. Network president Norm Normston shot it down immediately. Nope, that's how Roddenberry pitched Star Trek. Next. Oh, right, Swaggart said, defeated, imagining what it would be like to share a windowless office with the number three guy. Peterson, Normston said, what have you got? Wait. Swaggart said, determined to go down fighting. Did I mention the quadruple-breasted space aliens? A few body jokes followed. Secretary Margaret, who had come into the room to refill coffee cups as quick as possible, got the hell out of there. Can these space women be orange? Dibley asked, for reasons known only to himself. Of course, Swaggart said. The change from purple to orange would satisfy his colleagues and keep those bozos at the bar from suing the network. Swaggart described the Star Cruiser and the Electrosaurus. The others at the table were warming to the idea. Normston, though, had one question. What's it called? Swaggart paused. He couldn't remember. He squinted, but the ink on the last part of the cocktail napkin was smudged from bar sweat. Finally, he said, Uh, space... cavern. The project was greenlit. Then it went to the production designers to figure out how the show was going to look. What the hell do we do with this? They said to each other. What's a space cavern? Ultimately... The main set ended up being a hole in the floor for the cavern part, with a few styrofoam rocks around it, and an inflatable dinosaur peeking out of the hole, backlit for the electro part. The show ran for eight seasons, generated lots of lunchbox sales, and a couple failed movie reboots. The Jewel Brothers never got a TV show development deal, but they did build a nice career-writing ad copy for bourbon distillers. Swaggart coasted on his success for another 15 years, then left the network to form his own production company. But then, in the early 2000s, the company went into bankruptcy after Swaggart was deluged with sexual harassment suits by ex-secretary Margaret and oh so many others. In space, no one can hear you scream. But they sure can hear you be an a-hole. And that's our show. My thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, including all of the ones that you know. Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify. There's a few episodes on SoundCloud. Pretty much any one you want. If there's a podcatcher you like, and if for some reason the show isn't there, let me know, and I'll see if I can figure out a way to make that happen. And of course, you do need to launch yourself into the cavern that is the spacious iTunes, or Apple Podcasts. To me, it's kind of like the difference between Space Caravan and Space Cavern and leave a review in that space. It makes me feel good. Also, if you have constructive criticism, it helps me make the show better. And with all that weird algorithm stuff, it helps other people find the show so that you're not the only freak listening to this thing. There'll be others like you out there listening to it. You can make new friends with all the new listeners of this show. So that's really what it's all about, bringing us all together around Atari Bytes. You can also, if you're able... 
support the show financially by going to our Atari, Atari Bytes Patreon page and leaving a, a donation there if you can, or by picking up Atari Bytes Go Play Some Old Games They've Missed You shirts, mugs, other stuff at our Zazzle.com store, AB underscore pod underscore store. Just to t- type Atari Bytes and you'll get to our stuff. Links to Patreon and Zazzle and all of that are in the show notes. Our website is ataribytes.libsyn.com. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. You can like the Atari Bytes Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bytes or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also check out my occasional weirdness on Instagram. And don't forget to check out my other podcast. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown, where we cover all things related to the Peanuts universe. If there's anything you want to know or talk about, Related to Snoopy, Charlie Brown, Schroeder, Linus, Peppermint Patty, Marcy, Pitpan, Truffles, uh, Rerun, Woodstock, on and on and on. A bunch of other people I've forgotten. Merchandise, TV shows, comic strip, books, Charles Schultz, the cartoonist himself. Whatever it is, at some point, we will talk about it on that podcast. So if you have even a remote interest in that, go check it out. Thanks in advance. Alright, well next time on Tari Bites, we're playing... China Syndrome, which I'm pretty sure is also the name of a movie, but I haven't yet done my research. So go check out that game, check out that episode, live a good life. And of course, as always, until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you. Thank you.